And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, which I stood between the Lord and you at that time, to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will, hold, will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days shall you labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Good morning, church. It's good to see everyone this morning. You know, we here at Covenant Church... Um, we believe that God wants us to be ambassadors for Christ who bring gospel restoration to people's deepest needs in our broken world. Um, just recently, I was reminded of how broken it is. I was having a conversation with someone who began to describe to me uh, their upbringing and their family and what they experienced as a child and it was, uh, it was just, it broke my heart. And then as they talked about their current home and their marriage, it didn't get better. And as the, these details were being relayed to me, I realized, and just re again, once again, that when we think about our broken world, perhaps in the United States, the single greatest example of how broken our world is, is the state of the average home today. Our homes have a target on their backs. The devil, the great enemy of our soul, wants to destroy our homes. And, and you know, so the last, you know, since January, we've been, we've been looking at this idea of God's transforming grace, how he 
changes us and he conforms us into the image of Christ through his grace. And for the next couple of weeks, I want us to shift our focus and focus instead on our homes and see what does it look like when a home is being filled and shaped by God's grace. So since that's the case, it might seem a little weird this morning that we go to perhaps the ultimate example of God's law. And we think about homes of grace. We go to the Ten Commandments to talk about how a home should be shaped by grace. But what we have to understand is that the Ten Commandments are actually a beautiful example of God's grace to us. And if we're going to have a home that is shaped by God's grace, that experiences His blessings and His gracious love, that home has got to accept the authority and the purpose of the Ten Commandments and seek to align itself with what God tells us in these commands. Now, when we come, excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, when we come to the Ten Commandments this morning, uh, our, my intention is not for us to do a verse-by-verse -verse analysis of the commands. Instead, we're going to back up a step, take a little bit larger view of things, and see how the Ten Commandments relate to our homes. And to do this, I want to give you four gospel applications that we can pull from this passage of Scripture. The first application is the most important one of all. If you don't remember any of them, I want you to remember this because it's from this that we get uh, everything else. Everything flows out of this basic truth that God deserves and demands our exclusive allegiance. God deserves and demands our exclusive allegiance. If you don't remember anything else about this message and about the Ten Commandments, this is the point, the overall point of the Ten Commandments is that God deserves and demands our exclusive, absolute allegiance. That the Ten Commandments are actually laid out in a form that's very intentional. If you lived in the ancient world, and you were under the authority of a king, that might be that authority was established with a treaty or a covenant. It was called a suzerain covenant or a suzerain treaty. And in that treaty, what would happen is a king would establish authority over a people. Maybe it happened through war. <clears throat> Maybe it happened through just the natural ascendancy to the throne. But when that king took authority over the people, he would establish a covenant with them. And there were certain elements to that covenant. The king would introduce himself by name. He would explain what he had done for the people. And then he would lay out the different stipulations of the covenant, what the people were to do, not do, what he would do in way of blessing the people for obedience or what he would do if they disobeyed. And what you see in the Ten Commandments is a form of treaty that the Israelites would have been very familiar with. <clears throat> he says in verse 6, I am the Lord your God. Pardon me. <clears throat> I've got something stuck in my throat this morning. He starts with, I am the Lord your God. 
So the king is identifying himself, right? Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now he's telling them what he has done. And so from this point on, what the Lord does is lay out the terms of the covenant. What we know as the Ten Commandments. Now it's important for us to note something right out of the gate. Uh, Obedience to the Ten Commandments did not earn the Israelites God's grace. It did not earn for them the forgiveness of their sins. Obedience to the Ten Commandments doesn't do that at all. Being made right before God, experiencing the forgiveness of our sins, from Genesis to Revelation, the message is the same. We receive the forgiveness of our sins in God's favor by God's grace through faith. You go back to the opening pages of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. The founding father of the nation of Israel is Abraham. And what you read in verse 6 is that Abraham believed God, faith in God, and it was counted as righteousness. So what we see in these Ten Commandments in this opening verse in verse 6 is that the Israelites are already the recipients of God's grace. They are not obeying the Ten Commandments in order to earn or merit God's grace. He's already saved them from slavery. He's already declared that they will be his chosen people. They're not obeying, they're not to obey these commandments to get God's favor. They're to obey these commandments out of gratitude and love for what they've already received from God. And so when you look at this passage, for all he has done for the Israelites, God says, I deserve your exclusive obedience and allegiance, and the same church is true for us. When we consider what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, he deserves our exclusive allegiance and obedience, so much so that he demands it. And that allegiance... It expresses itself in two different planes. If you look at the Ten Commandments, the last six commandments is us expressing our allegiance to God in a horizontal plane, how we interact with other people. So the last six commandments are horizontally what it will look like when we're giving our allegiance and we're obeying God. The first four commandments is the vertical plane what it looks like when we give our allegiance to God himself and we worship him. And so these first four commandments, they're, they're critical. You know, to have no other God before me, to not have for yourself a graven image. This is the idolatry commandment that we're gonna spend a lot of time on this morning. You know, to not blaspheme the, the name of the Lord your God and to keep the day of worship, the Sabbath, holy and sanctified and consecrated. Don't miss out on the importance of those first four commands. This vertical plane, this is, this is essentially what Jesus is getting at. It is what Jesus is getting at when he says in the New Testament, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with what? All of your heart and your mind and your spirit. That's what these first four commands speak of. That God, he demands our allegiance to him because he deserves our allegiance because of who he is and what he has done. This application 
that God deserves and demands our exclusive allegiance, it sets the stage for everything else. Second application. Allegiance to God starts in our home. Allegiance to God starts in our homes. Our allegiance to God is expressed first within our homes. Let me think about your own life story. You were born. (laughs) And you were born into a home. And how was your allegiance to God first expressed within that home? Honor your, finish it, father and mother. Allegiance to God starts in the home. We see the importance of the home in God's plan within these Ten Commandments. There's some very clear indicators, right? Several of these commandments deal specifically with the home. We just quoted one, honoring your father and mother so that your days may be long upon the earth. That command that begins as children and it extends all the way through our lives as we take care of our parents and their elderly age and we honor them even after they pass. How about not having adultery. This is a home commandment, destroying the marriage, the marriage vows to be united to your spouse. How about the last commandment, to not covet your neighbor's wife, his house, his, his goods, his boat, his toys, his job, his career. All that, that 10th commandment is all about the home and not being covetous with someone else's life and their home, but instead being content with the life, the home that God has given you. Several of the commandments clearly indicate the importance of the home, but there's another indicator in these commandments that show how important the home is to God that many of us kind of just either we skip over it or some of us, we probably sat under teaching that completely misunderstood it and it became a club, an oppressive teaching as it was misapplied. In verse 8, we're in, the, we're in the second commandment, the idolatry commandment, right? Verse 8 says, no, graven images, the idolatry, no. And then he says in verse 9, <clears throat> you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now underline the second half of this verse. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. I visit the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Whoa. Let's be honest this morning. Does that sound very gracious to you? Yet we're up here saying the Ten Commandments are filled with God. This does not sound very gracious, does it? But we have to remember something here. We have to remember that God is making a covenant with his people. And God is a covenantal God. And the covenantal home is central to God's redemptive plan for the entire world. That's how important the home is. Before God established a church or a religion or a government, he established the home. 
and it's integral to his entire plan for the redemption of the world. So what he's saying here about honoring him, about worshiping him, about giving him our exclusive allegiance, it has deep, deep ramifications for us as individuals, but also for our homes and our families. Verse nine is huge. It's not a one-off. It's repeated throughout the Old Testament. Uh, The great prophet Jeremiah says about God, you show unfailing love to thousands, but you also bring the consequences of one generation's sin upon the next. You are the great and powerful God, the Lord of heaven's armies. God deserves, he demands our exclusive allegiance. And that allegiance, it starts within the home and now we have to take this verse, verse 9, and we need to dig into it a little bit more. There's a third application here that comes from this truth. Parental idolatry has a long-lasting ripple effect within the family. Parental idolatry has a long-lasting ripple effect within the family. How many of you ever, as a child, you took a rock, you threw it in a body of water? Raise your hand. Right? Oh, come on. Come on, raise your hand. Everybody did this as a kid. It was a ditch. It was a pond. It was like, and, and what you do, it was the most fascinating thing, right? You'd throw that rock into the body of water, and the splash zone would happen, and you would stand. I know I did. I stood there transfixed, watching the ripples make their way all the way back to the bank that I'm standing on. Right? You see, this is very much what happens within a home. Our personal idolatries Church, they don't happen in a vacuum. They don't just affect ourselves. There's a ripple effect to our idolatry. They affect others, especially our family. To the third and fourth generation, what does that mean? See, in the, in the, the ancient world, a typical home The family lived together, the generations lived together. And so in any given home, you normally had three generations and sometimes four generations living under that roof or on that farm or whatever the case may be. And so what happens, what he's saying here is your idolatry, the expressions of your idolatry, it affects your entire family. Comes into contact with this. Now, there's a lot of confusion about this. Sins of the father being visited upon the children. And, and, just, and ladies, you don't get off the hook here. What it really means is sins of the parents, right, are visited upon the children of the third and fourth generation. There's a lot of confusion about this. Uh, let's dig it. What, this is, God is not saying something here. God is not saying that if you sin out of his anger, and wrath towards your sin, he's going to punish your son and your daughter. That is not what that passage means. Now listen, some take it that way. Some use it as a club of fear that, okay, you sin and God is gonna tear out his wrath upon your children for what you've done. Certainly the Israelites did this. The Israelites actually expanded on it. They even developed little proverbs and pithy sayings that taught this very idea. 
And it was so egregious to God that in the Old Testament, in the prophet Ezekiel chapter 18, he decides he's going to correct this misunderstanding. And he starts out in verse 1 by saying, this Proverbs, these Proverbs, and he, and he gives them back to the people. He says, I want those Proverbs banished from your culture. Take them out of your vocabulary. That is not what happens at all. And then he gives all these examples. You know, you have a, a scoundrel father and a great kid. And he says, this is what's going to happen to the scoundrel father, and this is what happens to the kid. Or maybe you have a scoundrel kid, and you have a godly father and mother. This is what happens in that. And he gives all these different examples until finally you get down to Ezekiel uh, chapter 18, verse 18. And he's talked about the scoundrel dad. He says, as for his father... Because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, did what is not good among the people. Behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Yet you say, now he's, he's quoting the popular idea of the Israelites, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? He should be punished. He should have to pay the price too for what his dad did. And God answers, when the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. The second commandment does not mean that God is going to punish you or is punishing you because of your parents' sin. And we need to accept that, and when we accept that, it has some implications. Those of us who maybe are inclined to play the victim cards in our lives, he is now taking the victim card away from us. We cannot say, I am like this because of my parents, and I have no choice. I am who I am, and this is my lot in life. All the mess that's here, boy, I wish I'd had a better family. No, we all stand before God on our own, having to accept and own our own sinfulness and the consequences of our own sinfulness. There's good news here. Your destiny is not set in stone by your family of origin. No, not at all. So what is he saying? What does this commandment mean? Parental idolatry. We, we, we have to start with what is idolatry, right? I mean, I, I was, as a child, raised in church. I heard the word idolatry. Immediately what popped into my head was what? Statues, people bowing down to statues. The pagan world, they would take aspects of creation and they would create images and they would elevate it to a God status. If they wanted their crops to, to be better and to have a great spring, they elevated fertility in the land. They created a fertility goddess. They would worship it so that the land would reproduce its fruit and just go on from there. And so they had a myriad of gods, creation being made into the creator. Um, and so that didn't really resonate with me as a child. You know, I grew up most of my life thinking, you know, I don't always have the Lord my God as first and foremost. I have blasphemed 
I have broken the Sabbath. Um, based off of Jesus, I've murdered because of hate. I have committed adultery because of lust. I have lied. I have coveted. But at least I haven't been an idolater. I got one out of the ten. Right? No, not at all. You see, idolatry isn't just the narrow description of bowing down to something that's been carved by human hands. It's the principle that as human beings, when we see something in our life that is lacking, whatever it may be, security, significance, comfort, um, you know, that, that wealth, whatever it may be, when we see it lacking, there's a decision that has to be made. Do we trust in God and do we go to God with this need, whatever it may be? Do we allow him to either reset our thinking and help us to see that it really we don't need it or do we let him meet that need in our lives? That's the way it's supposed to happen. But what most of us end up doing at one time or another is we short circuit that and rather than trusting God, not being really sure that he's gonna meet this need, we seek to meet it through our own power, through some other means. And so for the person, a young person, who's feeling very insecure and unloved, rather than turning to God and letting God love her or him with a fullness that is satisfying, may turn to a boy or a girl and give themselves away sexually, breaking the sex commandment because they're not content the 10th commandment with their life. Have you ever stopped to think how much of our sin is derived from simply the breaking of the 10th commandment? The 10th commandment positively stated is to be content with your life. How much of our sin on the horizontal line is related to the breaking of the 10th commandment? A person isn't content with their spouse, so they look elsewhere and they break the adultery commandment. A person is not content with their finances and the way God has blessed them, and so they steal from God or from others and become corrupt and greedy for money. And, and the list can go on and on as examples. You see, the commandments are interconnected. This is why James says, if we break one law, you've broken all the law. But what we have to uh, uh, comprehend this morning is that every time we break something on the horizontal plane, behind that sin is a vertical idolatry. We are idolatrous. It is a root core sin that is behind individual particular sins. We seek to meet that need with something from creation rather than the creator that is idolatry. We do it all the time. It, how sadly ironic that today as we're focusing on the home, one of the, one of the largest maladies of the home today is that parental idolatry is expressed through the worship of children. The idolization of their children is how the underlying idolatry, the need for significance, reputation, meaning is expressed. I wish I had a dollar for every time someone broke the fourth commandment of the Sabbath to worship God 
to gather together with God's people. And the justification is, I want my child to have the wonderful experience of Mickey Mouse yet again, or the camping, or the sports teams, or whatever fill in the blank. I'm doing this for my children. I want them to have a better life than I do. I want them to reach their full potential. I want them to be successful in life. What we've done is we've elevated children to a God status. We worship our children. We live through our children. How ironic that the parental idolatry that is most common, I think, among evangelical Christians relates to our children and our homes. And understand something, parents. Parental idolatries, whatever form they may take, they affect our families. There's consequences to sin that are experienced by this generation and succeeding generations. And this principle is true for those of you who don't have children. If you have a home, you have a family. It may be an extended family of friends and co-workers that come in and out of your life and in and out of your home. And so understand, you're not off the hook this morning if you no longer have children or you've never had children. This is talking about the home itself. And so when we come to our homes and our personal idolatries are expressed, there is a ripple effect. Listen, every one of us in here, if we stop and think about it, we know that this is true. We know how powerful the family of origin is in our own lives. Where we come from, that family of origin, our parents, the authority figures that were in our lives as youngsters, they, they exert such influence upon our future years. Many of us here this morning we are suffering the consequences of wounds that were inflicted during our most formative years. And those wounds were inflicted by a parent or by a teacher or by a pastor or a youth pastor or an authority figure, someone that was standing in that role, parentis locus, whatever. They, and those wounds, decades later, decades later, they affect your life, don't they? Critical words, never measuring up. It's communicated to you as a child and now as an adult. Decades later, your self-image is shot. You have no sense of significance as God's child. You grow up in a home and you see that the way mom and dad dealt with stress was to open the bottle or to numb themselves with the television or something else. And it's ingrained in you that this is what you do when things go wrong in your life. Wounds that come from critical words, wounds that come from uh, people in your life who are distant from you emotionally and never really invested in you. And all your life you live to perform to get that acknowledgement of love from a parent and you never got it. And even today you struggle feeling loved by your own spouse. Why is that? It's the ripple effect of what you experience from idolatries in the youth. The power of our homes, it's incredible. Those of you who've experienced physical abuse, sexual abuse, 
at different points in your life, you live this reality. And even when God heals and he brings his grace into your life, there's still a wound there that occasionally raises its head and there's pain associated with it. This principle is true no matter how we look at it. The myriad of ways that we transfer our allegiance from God to something else, it harms us. It affects our children, our grandchildren. It affects those people who are in our home family unit, whether we're married with children or not. This is what occurs. Church, we have to think about this. As we make decisions, we have to think beyond just the immediate situation we're in and look at this from an eternal perspective, from God's perspective. A godly home, it doesn't just happen. It is led by a parent. It is led by a homeowner who consistently worships and serves God and teaches the children, teaches their neighbor, teaches their siblings, teaches the grandparents, teaches the co-worker through their words and through their lifestyle the importance of having no other God than the Lord Jesus Christ. This is vitally important. Verse 9 is a heavy verse. But it's a gracious verse. Because God is giving us insight into how important it is for us to turn our hearts to Him and give Him our exclusive allegiance. This is a needed warning. But as you hear it, I know that some of you have got to be thinking, Jerry, I was raised in a home where allegiance to God was the last thing on anybody's mind. Do you know what kind of home I was raised in? What hope is there for me with this type of idea? Or how about those of us who were raised in godly homes? Yet, we, in moments of temptation, deliberately reject God and we give in to the idolatries of our hearts and we sin and our children see it, they experience it. What hope is there with that? And this is where we need to shift and understand, yes, the Ten Commandments are God's grace. There's good news in this chapter our personal idolatries, the sin, the dysfunction that's in our lives, whether it's there because we have self-inflicted it or whether it's the result of wounds that are there in our lives, we have to take ownership for it and we can acknowledge that it's there and then we can rejoice because God's grace is greater than any type of sin, idolatry, wound that we have in our lives, whether it's self-inflicted or inflicted by someone else. God delights in flipping the script of our lives. And you can come from the worst heritage that's ever been experienced. And God's grace is so great that he can flip the script of your life. Are there going to be consequences from that sin that you have to deal with? Yes. But God's grace is greater than the consequences of that sin. God's grace is greater 
in those moments when you intentionally reject God and take matters into your own hand to meet the need that you see in your life. God delights in bringing beauty out of the ashes of our story. And many of us, we don't just have a little pile of ashes, we have a mountain of ashes. And those of us who don't have a mountain because we were blessed with godly homes, praise God for that. So where is the gospel here? Here in verse 8 and 9, he's dealing with idolatry. He says, visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children. But in verse 10, but I show steadfast love, not to three or four generations, I show steadfast love to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. Parents, parents who live in awe of God, you provide a priceless inheritance for your family, for your children, your grandchildren, your siblings, your parents. Some of you have had the delight of actually leading your parents to Jesus Christ. How does that happen? Because God flipped the script of your life. And when you begin to live in awe of God, a priceless inheritance is given, and we begin to experience it. In chapter 5 of Deuteronomy, at the end of the chapter, verse 29, we hear God's heart for us on this matter. He says, Oh, that they had such a mind as this always to fear me, in other words, oh, that they had a desire to, to be in awe of me, to give me that exclusive allegiance and that worship that I deserve because of who I am and what I've done. Oh, that they had such a mind as this to always live in submission and worship to me and to keep all my commandments. And what's the result of that? That it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. And at first, when you read that verse, you go, yes! But then you see that little word, all. Keep all my commandments, and things go well with me. And you step back, and you go, not going to happen. None of us keep all of his commandments. Have you? I haven't. Nobody has. Oh, wait a second. You see, the Ten Commandments are a gracious gift from God. They help us realize the depth of our sinfulness. They help us realize our need for a Savior. The Ten Commandments, they drive us to the only person who has kept all of God's commandments, to the only person whose allegiance to God was absolutely perfect and exclusive, and unassailable. Yet God punished him for someone else's sins. Our sins. So when you think about that, and how this chapter opened up with God identifying himself, saying, I've, I've delivered you from the slavery of Egypt. As great as God's deliverance of Israel was from the slavery of Egypt, how much greater is God's deliverance of us from the slavery and bondage of sin 
as much as the Israelites should have worshiped and lived in awe of God for their deliverance from the, nation, from the bondage of Egypt, how much worthier, worthier of our allegiance is he, our God, in light of the cross? Christian, when you sin and you break a commandment, when the idolatry of your heart wins that day, how do you respond? The answer, in awe of God. In awe of God. Reaffirming that allegiance to God. And when that happens, when, when we come humbly before God and we confess our sinfulness, we confess the idolatry of the heart, we express our desires and we turn to him in confession, something wonderful happens and it provides a priceless inheritance to our family. When we sin against our spouse, when we sin against our child, when we sin against our neighbor, our coworker, the people in our extended family, and we go to them, and without any rationalization, with no buts in the sentence, no explanation, but just simply acknowledge and confess, I sinned against you, I hurt you, I did wrong, there's no justification for what I did, will you forgive me? You give, parents, you give a priceless inheritance to your children. Parents, I know that a child can get on that last nerve, pitch a tent, and start driving in extra stakes just for fun. And when that happens, the idolatry of our heart says take things under control, give it back, teach them that I'm boss in this house, and you can respond in anger and improperly crush that child with your words or your actions. The best gift, the best inheritance that you can give to that child is to go back to that child and say, son, what dad said to you earlier was pure, unadulterated sin. I am so sorry for what I said to you. There is no justification for me ever talking like that to you. Would you forgive me? Would you pray with me? And let's ask the Lord to forgive me for that sin. I would contend it's better to, for you to do that and then tack on, now this is why I did that, and this is why my nerves were shot. And no. But the inheritance, the beautiful inheritance that you leave your child is not to deal with their sin at the moment. Deal with your own. And come humbly before him, showing that there is idolatry in your heart, but that the desire of your heart is that you would worship and be alleg have your allegiance with God. Repenting pursuing holiness through the power of the Holy Spirit, this provides a priceless inheritance for our children and our families, teaching them, teaching them that we do not obey, we do not come in here in order to get the favor of God. We obey, we worship, we live in awe of God 
because of what we've already received through His Son, Jesus Christ. That provides an inheritance that flips the script of any family. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, these things are hard because of our own inherent sinfulness, but it's needed. We need Your grace. We need Your grace that rather than turning to ourselves, rather than turning to the modern idolatries of our age, whether it's, it's our jobs, our money, toys, recreation, our children themselves, Lord, we need Your grace to turn to You in our time of need. Would You give that to us? Would You give us the power that we need through Your Spirit to come to You, to worship You, and find in You our all in all? For the glory of your kingdom and for the good of our families, I pray this thing. Amen.